Big Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips. Blue Boxes by Erin Horikova, read by Mark Reynolds. Although he didn't know it, Kenneth Whitby looked his best when he smiled. His adolescent edges softened, and one could catch a glimpse of the assured man he might be when he came into himself a little. He was smiling now because he was playing a game he loved and winning. Reverse engineering phone systems to crack the network wasn't easy. The very difficulty of it made it fascinating. A new hum rose on his line. Kenneth was navigating by sound, and it was as though the landscape around him had suddenly shifted. He'd never heard anything like it, never even heard of anyone hearing anything like it. Perhaps it was part of the advanced network he'd infiltrated, something wholly new. The others would go mad when they heard about this, and he would have discovered it. His grin faltered as the sound seemed to curdle in his ears, even as it grew maddeningly loud and somehow heavy. He gasped, more with pressure than with pain, but then no, with pain, with racking pain, and then he felt himself screaming. The line dropped dead. On the ground, Kenneth Whitby's body lay crumpled. The awful expression of bewildered fear on his face made him look more vulnerable and younger. Dr. Elizabeth Shaw was frankly shocked that the doctor had agreed to investigate the prank call's inundating unit. Normally, he made a West End quality show of offended dignity if asked to do anything he considered a waste of his time. That said, the doctor could remind her a little of Sherlock Holmes in that his sense of what was important could be idiosyncratic. Liz thought that perhaps the doctor's capacity to be intrigued had proved his weakness. The content of the cause was juvenile enough. It certainly sounded like kids fooling around. And yet the cause bombarding every extension were technically complex to achieve. Unit's internal directory wasn't a matter of public knowledge which meant that the pranksters, if that's what they were, had managed to work out a good deal about their network. When unit operators looked into the matter and dispatched men to trace the calls, the soldiers found themselves at public phone boxes and various nefarious addresses. When Liz remarked on the doctor's unusual willingness to, quote, foster cross-agency ties and show willing, he admitted he was simply bored and a little curious as to how it was being done. The last weeks had been quiet. The doctor's experiments with the TARDIS had stalled and Liz could see for herself that he was restless. She tried to get on with running chemical analyses of the various alien materials that had collected in the past year. The doctor, meanwhile, paced the lab, pushed his hands through his shock of white hair, occasionally sighed childishly, and generally made a nuisance of himself. Some days ago, Liz had suggested he could help her with her plodding but useful work. The backlog was months deep, because routine admin was the first thing put aside in a crisis. In response, he'd grunted, when she'd sweetly repeated herself as though she'd thought he hadn't heard her, the doctor had said something complicated about trying not to interfere with the development of human science, if he could possibly help it, which she suspected was at least in part a, a rationalisation for slacking. Brightening up now that he was on the case, it seemed any case would do, the doctor asked whether Liz knew how this era's telecommunication system worked in any great detail. Don't you? Liz asked. Goodness, I thought there wasn't anything you didn't know. She was only half-teasing. 
Despite his irritating qualities as a lab mate, Liz did appreciate the doctor. She'd never been close to her doctoral supervisor, and her own exceptional ability had sometimes made her feel she hadn't much to learn from other scientists. She was a little ashamed of that now. This strange man moaned about their equipment, but he never treated her as substandard or with anything less than respect. The doctor constantly reminded Liz there was more out there, that such potential was wondrous, and that for all their friction with the unit, and for all the danger of the work, the two of them were privileged to be in a position to discover something wholly new. Even the doctor hadn't seen everything. Wasn't that amazing? I suppose we'll have to learn then, won't we? The doctor said, standing up as though he proposed to hop in Bessie that instant, drive to the nearest telegraph pole, and demand to know what it thought he was up to. Or, Liz suggested, and I realise this might strike you as rather novel, we could ask other experts for their help? Uh, could we? The doctor did not really ask, sounding unenthusiastic about the prospect. Liz picked up the telephone in answer. Leibovitz in Cambridge's engineering department put her on to a grad student named Emily Chung. Chung had shown Leibovitz a party trick at faculty drinks, whereby one could get free long-distance calls, although he wasn't sure he should be saying that over a government line. As it happened, Emily Chung knew seemingly everything about the phone system, and almost as much about Liz Shaw. She sounded rushed and nervous, and it took Liz a moment to realise that the other woman was professionally starstruck. Miss Chung suggested she could run up to Unit's lab, if that would be helpful. Amused, Liz said she'd get Chung a day pass and expenses. Chung wasted no time hopping on a train, and upon arrival, showing them the note she'd made about Unit's problem en route. Ah, uh, I'm sure it's, well, they're called phone freaks? Uh, freaks? asked the doctor. Uh, yes, with a PH at the beginning, as in phone and brakes, uh, put together. Get it? Chung said. How quaint, sighed the doctor. Chung continued, they're playing with all the Whitehall lines because they've discovered some sort of way in, and they've found units especially intriguing. It's probably because you have a UN number with direct and emergency lines to all sorts of places. People are always ringing up the Moscow US Embassy for a lark. Chung hesitated, sucking in her cheek, then released it and said what she'd been avoiding making explicit. Normally I wouldn't talk to the police or the army or, or anything. A sensible, the doctor remarked, and nor would I if I could help it. She gave him a nervous smile, then turned to Dr. Shaw. But I'm certain you'll understand that what the callers are doing isn't illegal, exactly. Or if it is, not in a way that matters, Liz agreed. It's not even so much that they want free calls, Chung stressed. They do it for the fun of the thing, to explore or to trick the machine. And how do they manage that? The doctor asked. Chung nodded enthusiastically. So 20 years ago in America, their phone company spent billions trying to cut down the number of operators they needed. Instead of girls connecting up calls, now the system just sings to itself. If it hears the right note, it recognizes it. And more than that, the system assumes another part of itself sung it. This blind boy, Joy Bubbles, it's not his real name, I mean obviously it's not, but he learned to speak telephone just by whistling. An operator could tell it was a person, but the switching circuits haven't a chance. You mean to tell me the callers are doing this by whistling? Liz asked, impressed. A few do, Chung admitted. Several of the best are blind and have particularly acute hearing as a result, but then Crunch. Crunch? Liz raised an eyebrow. Yes, he's named after some kind of cereal. Chung explained, embarrassed. 
There was a plastic whistle in the box, you know, one of those free toys. So Crunch gives it a blow and thinks, well, that sounds familiar. He tries it on his phone and slips from his local line onto the trunk the system uses for long distance. Do that from a toll-free number and you can go anywhere, undetected. And the thing is, stopping it is just too expensive. You'd have to reimagine the whole modern international telephone system. Uh, these phone freaks are operating out of America, then? It's possible, Chung agreed, but it's more likely they're homegrown. For a long while, the post office said it was impossible to freak in the UK because our system was too advanced. Actually, the problem was that it was too crude for the same methods to work. Britain never moved over from the stowager switches to tone signals. But there's still plenty of ways we can break in. What's more, because of its international connections, Whitehall has some classic tone-based lines to play with. Uh, notice you said we, the doctor said wryly. It doesn't sound malicious, at least. Liz observed a flicker in Chung's expression. You don't agree, do you, Miss Chung, even though you're one of them? Oh, Emily, please, she corrected. Well, I suppose you ought to know that it's theoretically possible to saturate the trunk lines. Meaning? Liz asked. Freakers could overload a grid. With a couple of people and a more sophisticated frequency maker than that whistle, you could white out even a national system. A lot of people do talk about it. Just overloading units would be easy. And with a grid this small, and as much interest as you're attracting from freakers, they might do it by accident. Not to mention that your lines could get hot. Hot? Ah, uh, you mean someone could tap into them. I suppose our bureaucratic masters have a point. The doctor looked disgusted to find himself saying so. Uh, those lines need to be cleared in case of an emergency. And some of the things said on them haven't been cleared for public consumption, Liz observed. I'm rather more worried about a reprise of the Mars probe affair, the doctor said, rubbing his chin ruefully. Uh, generally, keeping secrets from the public causes more problems than it solves. Uh, but hostile forces having access to our exact movements. He shook his head. But if it's a matter of rethinking entire telephone systems, then how are we going to fix it? Liz asked. I imagine we go to the source, the doctor said. Contact the people doing it to learn more about how and why. It's no good putting up a temporary roadblock only for them to circumnavigate it in six months because we've managed to make them even more curious. At the very least, you and I ought to see how it's done, if we're going to devise countermeasures. Uh, what's your opinion, Miss Chung? He smiled at Emily. Well, we could hardly go anywhere without a blue box, Emily said, leaning back against a lamp table. A what? the doctor asked, his eyebrows rising up into his bushy hairline. Oh, one of those machines that simulates the AC9 tones. It's not just a level up from the whistle, they can get very sophisticated. If I had one, I could show you what I'm talking about, or sound you, I guess, Emily shrugged. We might need one to find a circuit, a party line where freakers hang out between phone trips and share information. Could you build one? Liz suggested. If I had the parts, though that's an issue because the viable stuff mostly comes out of Japan and California, and I might need a bit of help. Unit's good about fast-tracking equipment requisitions, Liz said. It makes a pleasant change from academia. And you'll certainly have our assistance, the doctor added. Unfortunately, coaxing fiddly blue boxes into working is the leitmotif of my life. It took two days for the parts to be located by Japan-based unit personnel and flown in, and the doctor Liz and Emily spent another day making those parts into something useful. Liz found it rather pleasant to have a task that didn't need to be done yesterday, with all of Yorkshire, or whatever it was this time, hanging in the balance. Once the blue box was complete... They waited until an hour Emily thought auspicious and dialed in. 
The three of them leaned in around an amplified receiver, and Liz physically reeled back when they cut into a call crammed with voices, arguing quickly, loudly, almost unintelligibly. Evidently, they'd found the freak's party line, though it didn't sound like much of one. Someone played an air raid siren over the chatter. Shut up, said a girl, presumably the siren owner, into the resulting lull of groans. I can't hear a thing. Take it in turns, though why I have to be a nanny. Uh, what's going on? The doctor asked, his stentorian voice shocking the assembly into true silence. You're so old, one of them blurted. Liz laughed, realizing these were all teens, twenty-somethings at best. The doctor rolled his eyes. How does anyone that old know how to do this? The siren owner demanded. Maybe he works for the post office, a fresh voice hissed ominously. You're really worrying about special investigations right now, a nasal boy retorted. Haven't we got bigger problems? What bigger problems? Chung asked. Choo-choo, siren owner exclaimed, even as Liz mouthed choo-choo at Emily, who rolled her eyes. Haven't heard from you in weeks. I've been back home. Haven't had much time. Are you on an amp line with old timer there? Sounds like you are. Well, if you'll vouch for him. The doctor was scowling. Liz decided she didn't know anyone at unit she wasn't going to tell about this. Sure I will, Chung agreed. What's up? The siren owner hesitated. Did you ever know the Twilight Trickster? Emily snorted. I can't say I've had the pleasure. You never will now, nasal boy snapped. They found him dead by his favourite phone box, blue box in hand and everything. I only heard about it when I went by his house to get my radio constructor magazine back. Was it a heart attack or something? Liz asked, her voice apparently not immediately flagging her as an intruder. It seemed that while the freakers shared a good sense of the sort of person likely to come here, they didn't all know one another, not by voice alone anyway. Not from what his mum told me, Nasal said. The worst Twilight had was asthma. It looked like he'd been electrocuted, just like Smooth Operator on Tuesday. I checked out Twilight's booth. There wasn't a thing wrong with it that I could tell. It's still in operation, so the post office didn't make anything of it either. Someone's coming after us. But why? Blurter pressed. Twilight didn't sell blue boxes to gangsters or radical heavies. He was, what? Seventeen, Nasal said. Smooth was nineteen, according to Tesla. She's the one who knew him, who told me what happened. His voice softer now, less defensive. He was scared. They all were. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous, the blurter put in. We don't have some big mob operation like we're in America. Twilight dialed in out of Chichester. The Mafia couldn't find it. And like Ban Nukes is going to somehow fry a freaker to death via the phone box outside the chippy. Ominous insisted that all those groups have USSR connections. Siren owner said she was a joined-up nuclear disarmament campaigner, thank you very much, and she didn't get a no-Christmas card from Stalin or anything. And now listen to me the doctor said. It's vitally important that I know the real names and addresses of your friends. I can look into the matter. Perhaps it's somehow connected to the problem I called to speak to you about. What's that then? Ominous asked with predictable suspicion. Uh, we'll deal with it later. Uh, well, are you going to give me those names and addresses? I suppose it can't hurt now, Nasal said, though I only know Twilight's. I can't ask Tesla until she calls in, and I doubt she'll say more than she already has. Thank you the doctor said after Nasal told him Twilight's, or rather, Kenneth Whitby's address. Do any of you know what these two were working on at the time? Reluctantly, Siren owner said Twilight had bragged a week ago about really starting to get somewhere with his unit calls. Smooth had also been big into the Whitehall lines, though Siren owner didn't think he'd ever bothered with unit. He'd messed about with the Admiralty. He loved ships. Do you think his death could have been caused by the government? Siren owner asked, hesitant. It's the sort of thing the Official Secrets Act could cover, isn't it? 
I assure you it wasn't unit, the doctor said, and his expression further communicates to Liz that, if somehow it had been, there'd be hell to pay. I tried it, actually, said Sirenona, when I didn't hear from Twilight for a few days. I wondered how it had gone. That's why I was asking about whether it might have been unit. I was on their line, and it seemed to work. But then what I thought was the dial tone clicked back on, which doesn't make any sense. I tried my bleeper again, but then, this sounds weird, but the tone started chirping back at me, like it was imitating my signal. Sort of, she demonstrated. Brag about your perfect pitch again, why don't you? Ominous jeered. Shut up, she said quite calmly. Anyway, I thought maybe some kind of security program was onto me, something new. She laughed nervously. I guess I got scared. Anyway, I hung up. I've been thinking about it since I heard what happened to Twilight and Smooth. Emily leaned into the receiver. Look, I think we ought to leave those lines alone, for now. Wait until all this clears up. If it's some kind of security system, let's give it the slip. If it's something else, something worse, my friends here is going to look into it. It's not as if there aren't other places to phone trip. Grudgingly, the assembled agreed. Then someone very excited to have called in from America entered the line. The topic of conversation shifted, and Liz looked at Emily, who nodded, then hung up. They had all this crowd could give them. Liz and the doctor paid a visit to the coroner in Chichester and looked over Kenneth's autopsy report. It was strange, almost as though he'd been struck by lightning. On a clear day and at 17 with a perfect medical history barring that touch of asthma, not likely. The doctor had to fight hard to get Whitehall to take the precautionary measure of shutting down its phone lines. Unit went into semi-lockdown rather easily. After all, they were accustomed to using military-issue radios in the field. But if the prank calls hadn't been confined to unit, the doctor argued that they couldn't be sure this phenomenon had either. Smooth's death indicated that all of Whitehall had been compromised. Surely it was better to be inconvenienced for the course of a week's investigation than to inadvertently cause another such inexplicable death. Whitehall had run for centuries without telephones after all. The doctor had seen them do it. At 3am, a payphone rang in Waterloo Station. Siobhan Riley, who'd missed the last train home after a disappointing night out, was stuck wandering the vast deserted concourse, wishing she had a magazine or, or better still, cab fare on her. She looked around, but there was no one else here to answer. She walked over to the phone, picked it up and said hello. Her only answer was a garbled noise. Sorry, Siobhan said, the connection's terrible. Listen, have you got the wrong number? This is just a payphone. There isn't anybody... What's that? Siobhan heard a buzz that made her skin crawl, and then her bones vibrate. She felt sick. She couldn't put down the receiver. The line went dead. Liz had put in a standing request for information about recent unusual injuries and deaths related to phones, police reports, hospital intake forms, the lot. She was hoping to find smooth, as well as keep abreast of any developments. After explaining with some exasperation that a repairman's falling off a telegraph pole during a call-out because a goose had flown into his face hadn't been what she was getting at, Liz finally received a tip that led her to visiting Siobhan in hospital. Her injuries were similar to Kenneth Whitby's. She was barely alive, and there was no real indication she would recover. By all appearances, and according to every standard maintenance test, the phone that had done this was in perfect working order. 
While the girl's injuries were grave and frighteningly inexplicable, Liz guiltily found herself wishing that they had left her comatose. Sitting straight up and stiff in her bed, her eyes wide, Siobhan made a shrill, unceasing noise. The duty nurse took out her earplugs to tell Liz that it only stopped when the girl fell unconscious and that she had never seen anything like it. They were going to sedate the poor thing as soon as the anesthesiologist came on shift. Liz thought the girl's throat must be worn raw from constantly producing that awful cry. And yet, wasn't it a little familiar? Where had she heard that sound before? It wasn't until Liz picked up the phone in the hospital reception to call Emily that she remembered. She almost dropped the receiver. It was the sound siren owner had imitated on the party line. First the signal had copied the blue box, trying to talk back, and then it had forced Siobhan to be its mouthpiece. People had stopped calling Whitehall, and so it had found another way to reach out to them. It was as though something was learning how to manipulate the electrical system of the human brain to sustain itself or to accomplish something. With a not quite irrational wariness, Liz dialed. The Waterloo phone box, Emily asked. That thing's famous in freaker circles. People ring it from America to test their ability to chain international calls and to chat with whoever picks up. Maybe it's a coincidence? Do you think it can be? Liz asked, doubtful. She made the short walk back, crossing the bridge, and taking a right at the clock tower. Big Ben struck the hour. Liz remembered a mystery she'd read once, where the murderer had been trapped in a church bell tower while they rang the changes all night. He died from the sheer sound. In the warm night air, she shuddered. The doctor literally lived in his office, and so Liz knocked politely on the door of his funny police box, as was their custom after hours. He was entitled to a bit of privacy after all. He gave her a cup of tea, remarking that she looked as though she needed one. Liz explained the situation at the hospital, and the doctor listened intently. Uh, so, uh, whoever or whatever is doing this must have known about that line already, he mused. Or, or this force somehow learned it from Kenneth as it overloaded him. Uh, perhaps that's what it was doing, uh, searching for information. I think the frequency that girl made on the party line must be important somehow. Is there any way to analyse it? Perhaps we could record Siobhan Riley. The doctor shook his head. Uh, no, by now I should have strained her voice with over-singing. She's trying to make the right note with equipment that shifted on her. Uh, performing mechanical operations like coding via organic systems tends to change them, as with block transfer computation. Maybe you couldn't hear the difference, but I'd wager the machine sending those signals would. Liz raised an eyebrow. You're talking nonsense again, Doctor. What on earth is block transfer computation? He visibly considered explaining, then decided against it. Nothing on earth, Liz. My point is, we don't need her. The Doctor whistled the note Liz had heard Miss Riley trying to make, which they both heard first on the party line. I may not have perfect pitch, but one does need to learn to really listen to communicate on some planets. In certain centuries on Draconia, slight tonal imbalances mean deadly insults to the other fellow's brood circle. That's amazing, Liz said. Is it really? The doctor asked, seeming pleased. Yes, I'm genuinely amazed you consider yourself a good listener, Liz said magnanimously. I don't know what you mean, the doctor retorted, taking her empty mug off her. 
The doctor, who claimed he needed less sleep than Liz and Emily, stayed up that night modifying the blue box. When the two women returned in the morning, they found him wiring their creation into his TARDIS. If we can answer that signal and pick up the call, hopefully we can give it what it wants, the doctor explained. And then with that done, perhaps we'll be able to find whatever's generating it. Emily handed around industrial earplugs, and Liz asked Sergeant Benton to clear the floor of personnel, just in case. I doubt we'll even need these, the doctor said when she returned, putting his earplugs in all the same. Just two computers having a gossip, all very civilized. But after Emily dialed into unit using the series of steps Kenneth had told the other freakers about, the TARDIS itself began to make that terrible sound at incredible volume. The earplugs were insufficient to the task. The doctor tried to shut the detector off, but before he could manage, Liz slumped to her knees, losing consciousness. Emily grabbed some wire cutters from the table. She stumbled and dropped them on the floor, but managed to kick them towards the doctor. Catching them, the doctor snapped the connection between the device and the TARDIS. He succeeded in ripping the blue box away, and at last the signal stopped. Emily, who'd forced herself to stay conscious in order to help shut the machine down, was left with a vicious migraine. Sergeant Benton came and took her to the sick bay to sleep it off. Still shaken, Liz examined their sundered handiwork. I've seen something like this before, you know, the doctor commented. I didn't recognize its earlier actions, but based on how the signal connected to our detector, I think we're dealing with an antiphon. I'm too tired to say a what, Liz groaned, slumping into a chair. Just imagine I have. Uh, think of it as call and response the doctor said, a highly sophisticated adaptive signalling device. It's a very common feature in spaceships, a sort of base component everyone uses in this section of the galaxy. It links up ship equipment so that all the paths speak to one another, as it were. It's the basis of things like system-wide damage readouts. If a ship is incapacitated and an antiphon can't communicate with its designated receiver, it's designed to find alternative means. Uh, usually that means rerouting signals through any available circuits. So what does it want with unit? Liz asked. The doctor coughed, rubbing the back of his head. Uh, well, as I said, uh, an antiphon has several uses in internal systems, uh, communication and external, uh, such as distress signals. Uh, it's possible that my tinkering with the TARDIS drew this signal to unit specifically uh, because the antiphon thinks the TARDIS is technologically advanced enough to help it. Uh, but either it just arrived on this planet, which we ought to have noticed, or, or something else recently woke it up. The doctor began to pace the room. Liz turned away from him, because in her present state, she knew watching would only make her dizzy, and if she got dizzy, she couldn't vouch for the stability of her stomach. If the signal started out localised to Whitehall, and then slipped over to Waterloo, uh, that suggests the antiphon is almost certainly nearby, the doctor muttered. Uh, perhaps in a building undergoing substantial construction with attendant phone and electrics work. Uh, why else would it start with the telecommunications system? But how are we going to go about finding out where? Liz looked at the doctor again incredulously. Have you really not noticed the massive new wing being built in the National Gallery? I've been busy, the doctor tried. No, you haven't. A brisk walk to the National Gallery and the accompanying fresh air did wonders for Liz. In ten minutes' time, the doctor was loudly telling the collections manager that he certainly did know the man's supervisor, who certainly would be hearing about this refusal to facilitate two perfectly legitimate researchers. 
Liz was never sure whether the doctor actually knew all the people he claimed to or whether he was simply good at bluffing. Both options seemed equally likely. And so they found themselves in the archives, sorting through items not currently on display. By luck, just when Liz was about to suggest trying their treacherous detector again in some fashion, the doctor discovered a metal object he considered suspicious. Listen to this rubbish, Liz. Hundreds of years old, my Aunt Flavia, who actually is, he snorted reading the tag, strikingly abstract Benin bronze from the private collection of a British official. Are you finished with your art criticism? Liz asked. Uh, they ought to give them all back, the doctor said standing, and now I am finished. Then may I ask how you intend to liberate something the museum won't even return to the people they think made it? Liz inquired. Uh, who do you want to tell them you were school chums with this time? The Queen? Oh no, the doctor said. Uh, that sort of silly story sounds far too complicated. No, I'm just going to liberate it. Liz looked at the doctor. The doctor stuck the flat fragment into his pocket. Uh, perhaps that'll teach them to take things that don't belong to them in the first place, he said cheerfully. Come along, Liz. Back in the TARDIS, the Doctor seemed suspiciously cheerful. As he attempted to trick the Antiphon into believing the TARDIS was its receiver, he told Liz that the National Gallery had spent its first twenty years without a director, accumulating all manner of artifacts of uncertain provenance. He cut himself off abruptly when the alien device he'd rested on the console emitted a few pulses, then subsided. That's it then, he breathed. It's had its answer. It should be neutralized. Now let's see who it does belong to. The Doctor was as excited as Liz had ever seen him, and she knew it wasn't just the thrill of solving the puzzle. The TARDIS was reading the Antiphon's data and comparing it with her records, and maybe, somewhere in that deep pool of information, there was something that would enable the Doctor to set out again. A real answer to the restlessness Liz began to recognize as almost something like a depression the Doctor struggled against. It wasn't just boredom making him pace his cage, but a true sense of confinement. It seems like it's from an unmanned information gathering probe, the doctor muttered, looking at his screen. He sounded hopeful in a guarded way. It broke up in an asteroid collision, he continued. Ah, here we are. Uh, the maker's species are rock-based life forms. Uh, they don't have electrical brains. Naturally, they never envisioned the sort of complication we've had. Uh, their antiphon must have seen people as so many stray connections and information banks they could try rerouting through or harvesting. An unfortunate accident. Advanced? Yes, I suppose they must be. Uh, no galactic wars of note, or I'd have heard of them before now. Uh, peaceful, then. Not isolationist, or they'd have no reason to send a probe out this far. But Liz could tell immediately when something went wrong. The doctor had an expressive face, and it showed all too clearly dismay, sadness, a flicker of self-pity, and then annoyance with himself for having indulged it. He stepped back from his screen, and his hand dropped. Liz gave him a moment and then wondered if she ought to take that heavy hand still hanging in the air. She did it. The doctor's fingers briefly tightened around hers before he coughed, slipped away, and raised his head. It seems they were all but wiped out by a virus ten years ago. According to the TARDIS's potential historical records, barring immense changes in the time stream, they're unlikely to ever recover their population, not to mention their former spacefaring capabilities. The doctor plucked the metal object off the console, regarding it. 
This is just an echo of their voices, I suppose. A, a phone without a network. He'd been cheated of his liberty yet again. And somewhere in the sky, an unknown spot of brightness, potential and discovery. But even more than that, life, perfectly known unto itself, had been snuffed out by chance. The doctor put the antiphon back down again, as gently as if he were handling a corpse. The TARDIS powered down. Her reserves of energy seemed limited, and Liz wondered whether that had always been true. In the lab, the two blue boxes sat inert and silent.